0: Is uh, Do I have this mic in the right position or do I need to try to... Okay, we're all right. I'm hearing a little bit of wind here. Um, in case you haven't met me before, I'm Tony Beach. Uh, my wife, Julie, and I and our family, we came to Emmaus Road back in about February of this past year. And uh, we came out of the Baptist Church, I was pastoring in a church in Appleton, and we really sensed God leading us to the PCA, so we've been making a transition, working on ordination. Also, uh, I've been counseling, contract counseling here at Emmaus Road and up at Jacob's Well in Green Bay, and we've been loving being part of things, and uh, Dan's gone this weekend. I don't actually know where he went. Does anybody? California, so he's in a nice place think, think happy thoughts about him um, he's he 's invited me along with the elders to preach for him today, so looking forward to doing that with you and My first thought with preaching on jeremiah forty eight was to ask a question, maybe because I do so much counseling but here's a here 's a deep probing question for you, um, regardless of your opinion of how the elections went two weeks ago. Have you experienced any relief when you've turned on, in the last two weeks, a Packer game, the news, or whatever you like to watch on TV, and you haven't had to see five attack ads on Scott Walker or five on Tony Evers to get through the program? Anybody willing to admit that there's a little bit of relief after election season? Okay. I was assuming there'd be, but I wasn't sure. I feel good about that. I, I, this is the only time of year where I can turn on a Packers game and actually be happy to see beer commercials. It's, it's like a finish line's been crossed. And I'm sure, I know we all love democracy, but I think political advertising is probably the price you pay in the modern world to keep democracy going, and you just got to get through it. That's, that's just what we got to do. That's okay with politics, I think. I mean, the, it's a fallen world. It's going to get ugly. But I think we can get in kind of a similar mindset when it comes to passages like we're in in Jeremiah where it's just hard. It's judgment. And we can start to feel like, man, these are God's attack ads against Israel, against Moab, against Egypt, against everybody. He's got something to say, and it's hard to listen to. We can get into that kind of kind of mindset, kind of easy. And and we feel like oh i just gotta I just gotta force my way through it if i 'm in a one year bible plan i'm i 'm looking for the gospels, just got to get through the minor prophets, and you feel good when you get there, but you can 't remember what you read and there's probably a problem with that right i've been i've been thinking uh, about some advice I heard i don 't know who it was from, but I think it was a while ago talking about reading the Bible and and it was some hard advice, but it was good. It was, don't just focus on the passages that speak to your heart. I mean, those passages are good. They help you. But spend some time in the passages that do absolutely nothing for you. Because if this is the word of God, if it's alive and if it's active like it says it is, it's not a problem with his word, right, that we're not getting anything out of it. There's, a, there's something in our heart that's in the way. And if it's keeping me from getting something from God's word, I want to deal with that. I want to give that to God and let him help me with it. And one of the best ways is to sit in one of these passages and just work through it with him. So you might feel like that's what you've been doing for a while with passages like this. You might feel like that's how it is with sermons on Jeremiah. Like, I can't wait till we get to Advent. It's almost here. But let's let's try to let's try to keep working it and see what God can do. So if you can uh, open up your Bible to me to Jeremiah with me to Jeremiah 48, I'm going to be jumping around a little bit beyond what's in the folder, and uh, I'm trusting we're going to see as we look at this passage that God's judgment isn't something just to get through. It's actually far different than ours, and it is good, different in every good way. So let's, let's take a look at what it has to say, what Jeremiah has to say in chapter 48 and starting at verse 3. A voice, a cry from Horoname, desolation and great destruction. Moab is destroyed. Her little ones have made a cry. For at the ascent of Luhith, they go up weeping. For at the descent of Horoname, they have heard the distressed cry of destruction. Flee, save yourselves, you will be like a juniper in the desert. For because you trusted in your works and your treasures, you shall also be taken. And Chemosh shall go into exile with his priests and his officials. The destroyer shall come upon every city, and no city shall escape. The valley shall perish, the plain shall be destroyed as the Lord has spoken. Give wings to Moab, for she would fly away. Her city shall become a desolation with no inhabitant in them. Cursed is he who does the work of the Lord with slackness, and cursed is he who keeps back his sword from bloodshed. Moab has been at ease from his youth and has settled on his dregs. He has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile, so his taste remains in him and his scent is not changed. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall send to him pourers who will pour him out and empty his vessels and break his jars in pieces. Then Moab shall be ashamed of Chemosh, as the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel, their confidence. Verse 31. Therefore I wail for Moab. I cry out for all Moab. For the men of Kirharaseth I mourn. More than for Jazer, I weep for you, O vine of Sibma. Verse 36. Therefore, my heart moans for Moab like a flute, and my heart moans like a flute for the men of Kir Hariseth. The word of the Lord. That's a heavy passage. And let's say this was your morning devotion reading this morning, and you went through it. And you did not feel lifted up. You did not feel inspired. You didn't feel like you were coming right to the the feet of God to learn from him. You just felt burdened and you felt stuck. What do you do when you just feel that way? Because I know we all feel that. And it's not just with passages like these. Well, I think the obvious answer is we talk to God, right? Like, who is the one who knows our heart, who can help us? It's always him. And we say, cry out to the Lord. And don't just ask for help. I'm always encouraging people, tell him what you don't like. He knows it already, but chances are, if we just have this feeling, we probably don't know it ourselves. And he's going to help us get that out to him. We see it in the Psalms all the time. He just wants us to get our emotions and our heart on the table for him to do some work with. So cry out to him. Let him know what's going on. And then, and then as a pastor, I would say, spend some time in this passage and ask yourself some important questions that you might forget to ask. And the first question is, well, what's going on here? You know, what is the backstory? Because any any prophecy of judgment is kind of like dropping in on an angry phone call. Has anyone ever listened to someone's angry phone call before? it doesn't make a lot of sense, right? I mean, you get the gist of it, but you don't know why and who's right and what's going on unless you know the backstory of this relationship. And we've got the Word of God that has everything you need to know about the backstory here. And one, th- one thing I encourage people is you can get a concordance, you can read it all, but most of us don't have enough that much time in the morning or in the evening whenever you read your wor- the Word. But if you have a study Bible, it'll actually summarize a lot of that for you, right in the notes. Or you get a Bible dictionary, and it can point you to the backstory. If you take a quick, quick glimpse at Bible study notes, you will, or study Bible notes, you will see Moab didn't just show up, and God's not just angry with them. They have been a spectator to what God's doing for 1,400 years, 14 centuries their forefather was Lot. So Moab was actually the son of Lot. He, Lot came to the promised land with Abraham, and he saw God do miracles. He was, his life was saved twice by the skin of his teeth by God. So Moab knew something about the Lord. Moab settled. They became a nation. And in these the 600 years where Moab's getting established, this grandson of Abraham is getting exiled to Egypt and starting to become a nation himself, a nation of slaves. And Moab sees something that has never happened in history. They see a nation of slaves in the most powerful empire in the world without lifting a sword get delivered by these amazing acts of God, these miracles that systematically destroyed Egypt and their religious system. And Moab sees Israel lifted out of oppression and sat right in front of them waiting to come in the Promised land, and then they take it. And they take it by beating nations that Moab probably never thought they could even try to fight. And they see this, and then they see for hundreds of years the judges, King David, King Solomon, and the ups and downs, and how if Israel's close to God, they thrive. If they get away from Him, they start to fall apart. And constantly they're receiving an invitation come to the Lord. If we read, uh, read just a little bit in the Old Testament, we see Israel was a nation of priests. They were meant to reach out to the nations. And Moab has this invitation for 1,400 years. And what do they do with it? If you just read this prophecy on the surface, it sounds more like a story of God, God's just angry, right? But when you think about the history, this is a story of patience. This is the story of God holding out his hand in an amazing way. And it's not patience like we have. Um, uh, I've done a lot of freeway driving because we lived in Minneapolis for 18 years. And if you're like me, when you see road construction coming up, which you have to drive through, you know, constantly in the Twin Cities, or if you're on 41, it's been constant there. You like to find which lane's moving and you want to get in that lane if you can, just in time, and... I had this wonderful opening when I was driving up to seminary one day, uh, coming up to some construction. I was getting ready to move over, and I didn't see, we're doing 65 miles per hour, I didn't see the car behind me was coming up at 85, so as I moved in the, the lane, that car was right there, and I had to swerve to get out of the way, and that guy didn't even seem to notice. like We were just on impact. And so I'm breathing a sigh of relief. I'm starting to get my anger going because it wasn't a very holy moment. And, and something funny happened, right? As I was about to even form an angry thought, we hit the slowdown. He locked up his brakes. The guy behind him is going 85. He locks up his brakes, smashes right into the back of him. And it was a perfect balance, though, because it wasn't hard enough that he got, anyone got injured, but it was hard enough that there's at least $1,500 of damage to both vehicles. And I have to confess, I'm like, God, thank you. The desire of my heart on the freeway is fulfilled for once. Is it, would anybody like to see that ever? I mean, it's, it's true. That's how we like justice. We want it done, you know, not over the top, but we want it right away, perfect, right in front of us, so we can say, yes, they got theirs, and maybe they'll learn. That's how we like to do justice, right? Right. We don't have patience like God. And you think about Moab. Moab wasn't even like somebody who almost runs you off the freeway. Moab is like the guy who intentionally runs you off the freeway, and then he turns around and sues you. And then he does it again and again for 1,400 years. You look at the relationship of Moab and God and Israel, just do a concordance search, and you just scratch your head. You're like, what are these people thinking? That was the kind of neighbor that Moab was. And yet God keeps extending his hand for 14 centuries to these people. And the sad thing is Moab thought he could ignore God's patience and warnings. Uh, we read in verse 11, Moab has settled on his dregs. He's like, they were famous for wine in Moab. He's like an old wine that can't, the, the flavor can't be changed. It is what it is. And he's seen God extending patience and invitations and even some judgments over these 1,400 years. But Moab seems to just think, I can ignore that. You know, this is just a bunch of bluster. Moab doesn't think that there is going to come a time where there's justice for every single person, every single family, every single community, every single nation before God, that God is patient, but it doesn't mean that he's lax in justice. They didn't realize every single word that we say is going to be brought into account. And they didn't realize how perilous their situation was, that they're literally right on the brink of being gone. And if you're reading, if we're reading this right, this chapter shouldn't make us just think, wow, how much patience does God have with Moab? But we should think, how much patience does God have with me? I mean, I can think of a list of things that He never should have excused in my life, but yet he stuck with me. And where is he patient with me today that I maybe need to pay more attention to and not presume that it means he's indifferent to sin that's going on in my life? Moab should get us to pay attention because God's judgment is far different than ours, he is far more patient. And it should make us pay attention to our sin rather than getting complacent and getting settled like Moab did. That's the uh, the first key message in this chapter. And that's a big message to get. And if you're like me and you're reading through a hard passage like this, I'm, tettled, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to just settle and say, all right, I got something out of this. Good, I'm, I'm done for the day. But are we even halfway into the story? Do we even... Do we even know the heart of what's going on yet? I mean, if your neighbor, hope it, hope it never happens, but the police come and they arrest them in the night, you want to know the backstory, but you also want to know, why were the police there last night? What actually happened? You know, what's going on here? We want to know why. And some of these judgment passages are tricky because God doesn't always give us the answer why. But in this chapter, he actually does. And that is a really good thing to look at next. If you look in verse seven, it's uh, it's an answer he gives us, short and sweet. He says, "Because you trusted in your works and your treasures, you also shall be taken." Later in verses twenty-nine to thirty, uh, God makes it clear pride is the main problem for Moab, because he says, "We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud." of his loftiness, his, his pride, his arrogance, and his haughtiness of heart. The Moabites were pretty high on themselves. I'm sure we can all think of people that just kind of walk around with this, this sense of, I'm self-sufficient, I've got the treasure, I've got, it, I've got it covered, I've got the knowledge. People who don't think that there's even a, a bit of need for the Lord in their life. That's a bit what it sounds like Moab was. Uh, Verse 26 and 42, they both tell us this wasn't just Moab being big on themselves. They actually magnified, Moab actually magnified himself against the Lord. And don't pass over that because that is a crazy thought. This idea to think that we are somehow greater than the creator of the universe and the sustainer of every inch of creation it is a crazy thought. And crazy thoughts lead to what? They lead to crazy actions, right? And, and God didn't have to list all of the atrocities that were probably happening in Moab, but we know from history, we know from what we see in the Bible, there are probably things like child sacrifice happening. Probably things like violence done to slaves and to the poor. There, were, there was probably rampant sexual immorality, violence against women. This was probably an ugly, ugly place to live. But God didn't have to talk about all that because he went right to the source. And, and if you look at any atrocity committed, any evil committed, you're going to find self-exaltation and this arrogant pride right at the heart of it. Anything in history that is always right. At the core, and we see that Moab, Moab was at the point with pride where God had to act; He couldn't leave them as a nation any longer. So that's that's pretty serious. But how does it fit with us? I mean, is this uh, is this a chapter that's there for us to say, "Praise God, I'm not as bad as these people"? I mean, they they were a mess. And thank you. I've learned some humility. And maybe if I was even there, I could have been an example to Moab. And I might have helped him out a little bit. You know, it's funny, but sometimes we kind of think that way. Like if I was just there, oh, it would have been different. I don't know if anyone uh, is familiar with Ted Tripp. uh, The author, he writes a lot of Christian parenting. um, Pretty well known. Uh, He said that He said this about our pride. He said, I can be walking from the kitchen with these two bowls of ice cream I just prepared for my wonderful bride and myself, two scoops of Rocky Road, our favorite ice cream, and I can be thinking, oh, I'm doing good. I'm blessing my wife. And and suddenly I notice I'm weighing the two bowls in my hand and I'm extending the one to her that feels just a little bit lighter. That's, is that what we do? (laughs) what we do with ice cream that's what we do maybe cake is your thing and you want the bigger piece or maybe it's money or maybe it's who gets the attention in a relationship or who gets to decide what movie or who gets to decide the future of our life together in our big plans pride has this way of constantly weighing things in our favor and we don't even know we're doing it half the time and we start to see we're a little bit more like moab than we think the scary thing, though, is that our pride doesn't just make us feel like we matter more than other people. It would be bad enough if that was the case, but it makes us feel like we matter more than God, too. And you might be thinking, I, I don't know. I mean, I can confess to, to giving myself more ice cream, but saying I'm more important than God, I don't think I do that. A lot of us don't spend much time thinking about that, but Consider this, what makes you more what gives you more offense? If somebody makes your name the butt of a joke or if they take the name of the Lord in vain, what gets you going a little bit more? What bothers you more if if some people you really care about ignore you when you're with them for 10 minutes or if they ignore the living God for a whole hour? You know what what starts to bother you? And I think most of us are going to confess we tend to put ourselves above God way too fast. We don't like to admit it, but there, there is an ugliness of self-exaltation. It lives right inside of me. It's trying to take control like every day. First John 2 calls it the boastful pride of life. And, and our passion for ourselves and our hopes and our dreams, it so quickly eclipses our passion for God's glory. Every day it's competing and every day it seems to win. It's crazy. I mean, I know I'm significant, but we're tiny compared to God, right? That shouldn't be a comparison. I I know my life matters, but it's nothing compared to his greatness. But I get it all backwards, and, and God makes it clear in every verse in Jeremiah 48 that pride is something he doesn't just oppose, he violently opposes pride. Like, he's up in arms against this, and it is evil, And the only solution to it is justice. And thank God, he's able to extend mercy, even the 11th hour to Moab, because this was a warning to Moab. We see, I think, in Jeremiah 11, when when God announces something, they have the chance to to repent, and it's not going to happen. He extends mercy because... There was one who came and lived that perfect life we couldn't live, the Son of God, who took the price of our pride, the justice for it, the infinite justice, and it was nailed to the cross through his body so we could be set free. And we have an opportunity today to be followers of Christ and still wrestle with this junk and say, God, help me again today. I want to humble myself again today, and I want to keep in that attitude of humility until the final day where it's gone forever and I'm, I see Christ face to face. There's, a, there's an amazing story of our country uh, doing this in 1863 that uh, I'd never heard about until recently. Um, I don't know Is anyone familiar with the Civil War or Civil War buff historians a little bit? So you'd know this is like the second year of the Civil War. Things are not going very well. This is the deadliest war in American history to date like by far. And the South was winning. And up in the North, uh, people were very confused because the North was against slavery. We had the moral imperative. God was supposed to be on our side. We had more money. We had more people, more troops. And we were losing up in the North. What's going on? Why why isn't God supposed to be on our side? Or why isn't God on our side? And Lincoln and the other leaders were actually making plans for evacuation of Washington, D.C., like that's, that's the point it was getting to. They were afraid. They were stressed. People had relatives in the war that were either dead, wounded, or are just living in, in difficult circumstances. And leaders did something that surprised me to read about. I mean, I would expect a call to prayer or something like that, but they actually issued a call to national humiliation. And I don't know, I hadn't learned this in history when I was growing up, but. Uh, In that uh, spring of 1863, this is what they wrote. They said, The awful calamity of civil war may be but a punishment inflicted on us for our presumptuous sins. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown, but we have forgotten God. We have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. That sounds a bit like today, doesn't it? intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. And so we have the president and Congress calling the nation to prayer and fasting and humiliation and seeking God with that kind of posture. If you know the Civil War, the Battle of Gettysburg happened about three months later, and that's considered the turning point in the Civil War and i don't think it's inconsequential that this declaration happened just 3 months before that there is something significant about turning to god and our pride and just acknowledging it and and it's not just a one time proclamation that we make we don't we don't say you know i feel really bad fix it today god but this is this is something the bible tells us we need to walk in matthew 3 says produce fruit in keeping with repentance humility is a virtue to maintain and Lincoln and Congress even had to do the same thing. Again, the Civil War lasted another two years. It, it got worse. It got harder. Uh, there were more victories, but more losses, more suffering. And they actually issued the same kind of call to humiliation a year later, and they stuck with seeking God. And that's, that's commendable. That's something we need. And that, that is a picture of the kind of walking in repentance that God was calling Moab to, he was calling us to, and he says it right in Isaiah 66:2. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God's judgment is far different than ours. He is far more patient. He takes pride far more seriously. But if we humble ourselves in Christ, there is grace every day. We gain the living water that we were reading about and talking about in Jeremiah 2. Water, that's the life of the Spirit. We gain the ability to love people freely and not have to be weighing things in our hands as we give them to them. With passion, we can serve. We can delight in God and see him as he is and not not be so worried about ourselves. We can enjoy his love. We can experience real hope in him as we let go of that. And let him fill our lives with his truth and his goodness. That's the the second key message of this passage. God takes pride far more seriously and he's offering a way out. So that's the first two. What about the third message? It's it's not too hard to see God's patience in here. It's, uh, It's not too hard to see that pride is the big issue in here, but... I think the third theme that's here that's really important to think about is one that can fly over our heads really quick, and it's, it's God's sympathy. Commentators who read this say this is one of the key things that is emphasized in Moab's judgment. Uh, when you're in a hard passage, it's pretty easy to miss God's emotions or just to read something simple into it and not quite read it right. Like here, the first time through, I'm sensing a lot of anger, and that's pretty much what I take away from it. But if you really slow down and start to think, how does God really feel? You're going to see verses like 17, where God calls everyone around Moab to grieve for him. Uh, Verse 20, where he says, wail and cry. Verse 31, he says, I wail for Moab. I cry out for all Moab. In verse 32, I weep for you. In verse 36, twice, he says, my heart moans. For Moab, it moans like a flute. This, this isn't God just showing a brief moment of concern. This is, this is the kind of mourning that you, you hear from a father who's losing a son, right? You know, Moab is like this son who God has pursued for 1,400 years, and he wants him. He's not an angry judge casting his final sentence. This is a broken-hearted father saying goodbye to a son he loves, and he knows the only hope for them is to go through something brutal and difficult that they might turn back. We see it all over Scripture, right? God is a God who doesn't just judge. God is a God who weeps. We read in 2 Corinthians 1, "He's he's the father of compassion. He's the God of all comfort. We don't always think about it, but he's moved by our pain. You know, he's, our suffering, it doesn't, it doesn't always mean that God's judging sin in our life. We read scripture and we see there's a lot of reasons for suffering. There's persecution, there's, there's just the hardships of living in a fallen world. But even if you're suffering because there's sin and God's got to deal with it, man, he says things like, I moan for you. I long for you. And in Hosea eleven eight, I think is one of the most poignant statements to rebellious Israel. He says, how can I give you up? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. God has sympathy that we don't have, that we don't imagine. And, and this is why God sent Jesus for all of us rebels. Because of the great love with which he loved us, right? Ephesians 2, he was inspired to rescue. And this is why the last verse in this chapter talks about Moab's not done. Moab is going to be restored one day. There is a plan to save this lost son. You see, God does not give up. He's a jealous God. It says it right in the Ten Commandments, right in, I believe, the Third Commandment. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He wants us. He longs for us. He's never indifferent. And when we rebel, he's angry, but he's also grieved, and he wants us back. And no matter what it feels like to us, the truth is that no one is more for us than our Heavenly Father. Nobody can ever be more for us. And when you're caught in rebellion, he is longing to bring you back, just like the father of the prodigal son. Remember, he was watching and waiting, and when he saw the prodigal come, he takes off running, and he throws his arms around his son, and he celebrates because his son is alive again. That's the kind of love God has. That's the kind of sympathy he had for Moab that he has for us. And today, he might be giving you the invitation to, to stop and say, you know what, God, I don't I don't even think about this enough. I don't think about how you care. And he might be giving you the invitation to stop and say, I need to look at scripture again and see, how does God care for me? Maybe talk to some people and get some help. Because if we miss this, we miss so much of his love and the grasp of it. Jeremiah 48, it's, it's showing us God's far more patient he takes pride far more seriously than we do, and he has a sympathy that is far exceeding any human sympathy and is directed towards us. God's judgment, it's far different than the way we judge things. It is good and different and good in every way. And, and as we wrap up, I would just encourage you, take a, take a moment and ask yourself, you know, what does this mean for me today? is uh, God underlining just the whole idea that, man, I run away from these hard passages and I could really stand to spend some time in them and, and working through the problems that I have and getting some help. Maybe that's what he's underlining or maybe it's his patience and thinking, I forget what a treasure that is, that I'm just living in patience. And maybe there's something that he's trying to point out that you need to deal with today and stop presuming on that patience to go on forever. Or maybe there's someone he's showing you, you can show that kind of patience too. Maybe it's his opinion on pride, and you just need to sit down and start to think about, take into account how how bad is pride in my life. Maybe I'm underestimating it, and I really need to humble myself before God. Or maybe it's his sympathy. And you really, really do need to stop and search scripture to see how does God really feel towards us and start to think about that more. Maybe it's something else completely from, different from the service or from this week or this morning. I just want to give uh, the Lord a chance to impress, you know, whatever he wants us to really focus on uh, to our hearts right now. So we're going to pray and we're just going to take a moment to think about that. <clears throat> Father, thank you for uh, a beautiful day. Uh, even if it's cold, it's just beautiful to see the sunshine. And it's just another picture of your grace and your, your warmth that cuts through the cold, that sustains life. And we thank you that there is forgiveness, that you can be adamantly against sin and it is good and it is right. And you can be adamantly for us because you've given your son at the cross because you love us and your heart is full of grace. We just pray for help. Help us to see you as our longing Father, help us to see your love. Help us to take account of your patience and not take it for granted. And help us to have that passion to fight pride and to, and to just cut it off and to kill it and not want it to be part of our lives. And Lord, we pray, whatever, whatever it is you want us to focus on in a particular way, we're just going to give you a moment of silence here that you could maybe impress that on our hearts.